Well, welcome back, everybody. We are uh, on episode five of Unlocking the Vault with your host, Dan Lindstead. My name is Cindy Meyerson. Uh, we're happy to have you with us today. One of the things we're going to do in this episode, as we mentioned in our previous episode, we're going to go back to episode three and, and talk about a couple of terms, KPAs, KPIs, and what that means to the business in, I'll say, business lingo. So uh, Dan, would you please pick up from there and let's talk about what this means? Yeah, thanks, Cindy. In this particular case, we like to define our terms. As you know, language is a stickler and part of standards. And it makes sense that we actually define the terms that we use in the podcast or in our documentation and everywhere else. This particular term is really good for business called KPA, Key Process Area. And it comes from CMMI, which stands for Capability Maturity Model Integration, which, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, comes out of Software Engineering Institute from Carnegie Mellon. So KPA is actually defined in Wikipedia under CMMI as a cluster of related practices in an area that, when implemented collectively, satisfies a set of goals considered important for making improvement in that area. And we're speaking specifically about business areas. So we call these KPAs or key process areas. These are things that if the business did not do them, then they couldn't conduct business. So this was what makes them key instead of optional. So we have both in business key process areas and optional process areas. But you know, as well as I do, if you have a key process area defined, that tells you what you are looking at. It doesn't tell you whether or not you're succeeding at how you build it or in the time you need to build it. And this is where KPIs come in. Now, the definition I'm going to use for KPI is from investopedia.com. It says KPIs refer to a set of quantifiable measurements used to gauge a company's overall long-term performance. KPIs specifically help determine a company's strategic financial, and operational achievements, especially compared to those of other businesses within the same sector. KPIs can also be used to compare against past performance in and across multiple teams, whether they're business teams or IT teams, in how the teams are performing or how the solution meets business needs or doesn't meet business needs. And you know, as well as I do, as do the audience members, that a task will expand to fit the time allotted. If there's no measurement, if there's no KPI to measure that task, then an example of that time allotted could be the, the actual end date or the delivery date and the amount of work that needs to be done. And so you've got things like function point analysis and process measurement statistics to determine estimate versus actuals, for example. We're going to move ahead from these terms, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples. So key process area in a commercial application, for instance, everyone, almost everyone, has something called a customer acquisition process. And that is an example of a key process area in a business that the business needs to focus. So the area of business focused on how and when you acquire new customers. That's pretty important, especially if your business relies on external customers of any kind. In the public sector, you've got the Department of Interior, and they have a key process area of managing reforestation. The KPIs for these KPAs in a commercial sector would be how many customers has the business acquired over what period of time. An example of a KPI as well is how much does it cost to acquire a new customer. 
these are all very, very important things and they relate to historical data and analysis and trending and predictions and everything else. In the public sector, a couple of examples of KPIs and then we'll move on. How many new trees have been planted and over what period of time? That's, that's an indicator of whether or not your new growth forest is actually working, right? How many trees has survived from year to year? So there's a predictive analysis in terms of, hey, look, we planted a thousand trees last year in this several hectares of land. You know, how many survived? Uh, how many trees have reached maturity over the lifespan of the expected tree, right, to adulthood? How many have died because of disease? Are they all dying in a particular plot of land? If so, what's the cause? Now, that's the, that's the follow-on analytic question. What is causing the trees to die in mass in this one area? So that's some of the things that you can use with KPAs and KPIs. They're all very, very important. In some future podcast, we're going to dive deeper into how to measure, what to measure, why to measure, what the value of the history of your data is, and how that all plays out in terms of data as an asset. We also use the term commonly technical debt. And so there are so many facets to what technical debt is. And I mean, I would love to see the business understand what the warning signs are for technical debt, because usually when they look at those escalating costs for IT or the escalating costs for a warehouse, it's not clear necessarily on what is causing that price escalation. So one of the things we also promised the audience at the end of episode four, we started talking about mergers and acquisitions. And what we were focusing on was merger and acquisition with regard to data. From a business perspective, can you sort of share with about if a business is going to acquire another company or they're going to merge with another company, I'd be interested to see where Data Vault fits. If the acquiring company has a Data Vault, where might the Data Vault help in that, in that acquisition? And if as a purchaser, uh, and then if you're in the middle of a merger, how might a Data Vault assist with a merger or an acquisition? Okay. So mergers and acquisitions, you got to divide it up into the, the business processes. One of the first things that happens, obviously, people get together and say, hey, we want to acquire your company. And then they make all these agreements. Part of the agreement or part of the legal agreement, obviously, is something called due diligence. Uh, all in all, to wrap that together is there's a period of time within the legal document where the company that is doing the acquiring has the ability to look inside of the other company. They interview the employees, they look at the data, they look at the business processes, they look at the analytics, if there are any that are collected. In other words, is, is the company they're acquiring telling the truth about their true value? Do they actually have all the customers they say they have and so on and so forth? So due diligence is really the onus is on the acquiring company to figure out if in fact it's worth all the money that they're about to dump into the company that they want to buy. And through this process, time is of the essence. Getting to an answer quickly is very, very important. And one of the things that, that has to happen is they basically perform a series of audits. They can be standard audits. They, they might also be non-standard audits. But in the case of analytics and data, they want to look at all the data sets that are collected in the operational systems. But you can only go so far, as we all know, in an operational system, you can't really see a lot of history. How was the company performance over the last five years or over the last 10 years or over the last whatever period of time the company's been in business for? What was the performance metrics? What were they doing? So a lot of times the M&A and the due diligence process rely 
on the expertise of digging into the analytics side for auditability and transparency from a data set perspective. Then there's the actual merger that comes after the acquisition. And as time is also of the essence, how quickly can you leverage the new company assets and the data in, in the customer base and everything else? That said, there are two sides to an M&A. There's the one side where you buy the company for all of its assets and you let it operate the way it always has without integrating all of its data and without sort of integrating everything into what you're doing. You just let them continue to run the way they, they always have been run. And that's a Unilever model. If you look at a corporation like Unilever, they have a lot of sub subsidiary brands that all operate independent of each other. So that's that's one model. What I'm referring to is once you get this company acquired, Suppose you want to actually leverage it. You want to combine your data as an asset. One of the companies did this with the Data Vault, and, and there are reasons why they did it with the Data Vault to meet some critical challenges, particularly the time challenge, but they also did it for auditability purposes, is, is J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, this was a long time ago. This was probably in 2000 and I want to say 2003, you know, JP Morgan Chase, I think now is just Chase, became Chase and then Chase Manhattan and then changed again. So time context wise, this was a while ago. But when I did work with them, it was JP Morgan Chase. And, and what happened was I got invited to a CIO conference by a benefactor. I was a consultant at the time and consultants weren't allowed into the CIO conference. This was back when CIO Magazine was running a yearly CIO conference and they had 50 different CIOs from major Fortune 50 corporations from all over the world. I remember listening to Ray Kurzweil speak uh, at this conference and then meeting him afterwards. Interesting, interesting guy. But but nonetheless, so I went to play golf with uh, the CIO, JP Morgan Chase. And he gets up on the tee and he starts swinging his ball. And just before he hits it, he turns around and he says, hey, thanks. And then hits the ball a mile. Uh, I said, well, thanks for what? As he's walking off the tee. And he said, aren't you the guy that created this data vault thingy? And I said, oh, yeah, 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 I did that. And he said, oh, you can ride with with my CIO. I think I was talking to the CFO or some, they're, they're, they were both there. But I was talking to the CIO in the golf court and he said, well, yeah, because of data vault, the flexibility of the model really is what came forward there and the flexibility of the processes, along with the auditability and the due diligence, they were actually able to merge and acquire three companies inside of 90 days, literally 90 day time window, the entire merger of three different companies into JP Morgan Chase, full, full processes from an IT perspective, the full business from an IT perspective, um, all of the data into their analytics due to the fact the way the data vaults constructed and that had to do with the model and the, the process standards. Uh, don't forget the standardization of the methodology. That's a big part of it. But uh, being able to absorb all this new data and all these processes and acquire them into the company and then organize the analytics so that you get a corporate view at J.P. Morgan Chase of all of the assets you just purchased that right there speaks volumes. He said without Data Vault, it would have taken him probably two and a half years to do the same thing, just to give you a, a view as to what Data Vault did. Now, that story dives a lot deeper into the techniques that Data Vault uses. And we're not going to bore you with that on this podcast, but really time sensitive and time critical challenges are of the essence in mergers and acquisitions, along with the due diligence cycle. And when you look at due diligence, if your numbers come back bupkis or they don't line up with what the company's telling you, then of course you don't want to acquire them. It could go the other way. You, you could use the Data Vault for all these investigative purposes and uh, the methodology, the model, the architecture, the whole nines, all the standardization and the automation you can throw at it. And you can maybe make a determination that, nope, this isn't the right investment or it's not the right time. So it can help you in that regard as well. 
So I worked for uh, General Telephone Electronics Corporation, and I was in um, international law. And I remember these massive acquisitions we used to do. And it was interesting because a lot of effort went into, as you said, the due diligence pieces. I remember uh, when we purchased a microcircuits facility out in, in Arizona. And we did, we had to merge. It was a completely different business from anything that General Telephone had ever done before. And the process was, took us over a year for sure, just to acquire this small company. Um, I do recall, you know, meeting after meeting with between finance and legal on both sides, hammering out the auditability of the numbers and the projections for uh, the worth and the value of the company in the future. And I know that, and we did not have a data vault, <laughs> we were working off of, you know, comparison of numbers uh, coming off a mainframe between, you know, a small mid-size server and things like that, and not having a, a method really through which we could actually equalize numbers in an easy way and also do valid comparisons. That is uh, certainly something that helps when you can put everybody on the same sheet of music. My thought also when you were talking about this whole idea of mergers and acquisitions and your ability to provide data as a feed to that process, I was also thinking about people that are out there looking for venture capital. Let's just say it's a startup. They're just building out certain systems are actually capturing certain metrics. We were talking about definition of KPAs and KPIs, who they're targeting necessarily as, as a customer, what kind of market research they've done whether that data has been captured in a form that could be used by a, a venture capital funding organization to best assess you know, what the longevity and the sustainability of the company is, what its actual value might be going forward. Have you thought about that? Like from a data vault, we, all, we sometimes hear, is a data vault over-engineering? We, we go there oftentimes. This is the data vault over-engineering for a small company. You know, what if I don't have 300 terabytes of data? And what we've always said is, unless you've only got a single cash register and your plan is to keep a single cash register like a mom and pop shop, you probably ought to be thinking in terms of a way to build for sustainability. And in the case of a small startup company, planning for an acquisition, planning to be able to justify your value of your company, how might that fit into sort of the scenario of, of a merger and acquisition? And how might a VC funding firm look at a data vault that perhaps has been built inside of a company that's a little more, I would say, forward thinking and prepared to be transparent in an auditable fashion with the, the build of their startup? Yeah, those are great questions. And of course, there's a lot of questions there. So if, if you start at the end and work your way backwards, and by the end, I mean, you, you start at the outside, you start at the VC firm, or you start at the auditor, it goes back to something I did share in one of the previous podcasts where we started talking about M&A, and I ended up talking about data divestiture. And, and I talked about auditability from a standpoint where I refused to build a data vault because the company didn't have an auditable data source. So if you, if you start at the level of a VC firm, they want to know from a numbers perspective, if the money they're putting in is worth, they're going to get their money out and then some. So the VC acts much like a corporate regulatory body or an auditor uh, that comes in from the outside and says, hey, you know, we saw this report from this company that you're buying three months ago. 
or a year ago or six months ago or whatever it was, please reproduce that report, that same report with those same numbers. That's only the beginning of the question. The company that has that task has to be able to produce accurate, repeatable, and reliable answers and be able to reproduce that report as of the time frame or the time window when they first produced the report with the same business rules in place that were in place, let's say six months ago or a year ago or whatever the case is. And this is where a lot of companies fall down. The data vault houses all of that data as a system of fact or statement of fact at any given point in time. And that's what the data vault does best, right? So it, it gathers all these facts and integrates them by business key. So it ties them into your business processes and your business ontologies and your business taxonomies by business key. It attaches that data as it stood at that point in time to all of those things for that point in time. And hopefully the company has enough foresight to back up their business processes at that time as well, so that version control and good governance is in place. If the team gets asked, hey, a year ago you produced this report, please reproduce that year's numbers from a year ago with the exact match. The team can go back to the backup, pull the business rules in and go back to the raw data and produce it with the last year's data. Now, why is this interesting? Can this be done cheaper, faster, and easier? Sure. If you have a backup of the report, it's easy enough to restore the report and just hand over the PDF or go look up the PDF that was originally generated. But auditors don't stop there. VCs don't stop there. They'll say, okay, this is exactly the same report, but I want it printed in front of me right now with the same data from last year. And they'll want to watch the process happen in real time. It's not good enough to just reproduce a copy of the PDF that you gave them last year. That won't work for them. But then the question changes. So let's say that you can do this and the data vault does provide ways to do it. It provides a standard approach, provides a modeling method that, that allows you to, to set this all up. And this is where it gets really interesting from an investment perspective, as well as um, the auditor perspective. The question then becomes, well, you know, in December, six months ago, you, the, the company we're investing in, changed your financial rules because you had to, because federal government changed regulatory uh, rules around how you did your financial reporting. Whatever the case is, those financial rules are a moving target because laws change and governments change and people change and all that stuff. But now the question from the VC is, can you take last year's numbers and rerun last year's report using today's financial rules. And that's the kick in the butt where most warehouses fall down, where other solutions don't make it, can't do it, um, because all they have is today's financial rules and they have last year's numbers. So they could probably do that, but most companies cannot produce last year's numbers using today's business rules and apply it to last year's reporting format. So that's the difference. Now, the, the auditor and the investor are looking to see what's the change in valuation based on last year's estimations and last year's financial rules versus this year's financial rules from last year's data. And they're looking for that comparison to see is the value of the company really going up or is it going down in accordance with stock price and investment and everything else. And so these are some of the more interesting questions. And then it, it goes usually one level deeper. The next thing that the auditor or the financial investor will ask for is, can you take today's numbers and build a report 
produce a report based on last year's financial rules. And that also screws up a lot of warehouses because they don't have the methodology in place to do it. They don't have the governance. They don't have the backup. They don't have the, the data set or the model isn't geared to house the information properly or the data properly to do that. And so the Data Vault has all of these things set up where we take data from a raw state and we have version control over the business rules so we can take last year's raw data, run it through today's business rules and produce it in accordance with that view. We can also take this year's data and run it through last year's business rules and produce last year's report as it pertains to the current raw data in the financial operations. And so this is something that the Data Vault is very, very good at. Just to top it off, the Data Vault methodology provides the auditability and the transparency through the rule set. You can actually see what it was before it was transformed in the business rules and what it ended up being after it came out of those business rules. And you can do this in front of an auditor. I did this with Lockheed Martin over and over and over again when we were building the Data Vault. And that was one of the financial reasons why we built the vault that way was to meet these auditability needs. Now, Lockheed within itself didn't really do M&A, but they had an awful lot of auditing going on. I think financial data, it's easy to visualize performance measures and things like that and why they're important. Let's just say I'm, I'm going to uh, acquire a software company, which is going to be dependent on a set of developers. And I am looking at this company. And, and one of the things I know is that technology changes at the speed of light anymore. And that the software that they're building today is not going to be the software that they're going to need to build for tomorrow's customers or for tomorrow's technologies. And as a potential buyer, one of the things I'm interested in is how highly performant is the development team? Am I buying a company that's going to be, I, I like to use the analogy of similar to turning an aircraft carrier around in a bathtub, like they just can't move, pivot, they aren't working really in an agile way, even though they have agile practices inside of their software engineering organization. Are there metrics as a potential buyer I should be looking for regarding a team's ability to perform? Not just the team, but also the quality of the software that's being produced. What metrics would you be looking for and what do they actually mean from a business perspective? First off, I want to point out the Data Vault methodology is the, the steps on how you build. And it includes, as we said before, the agile ways of working. Some of what you're looking for when you measure a team's performance comes from agile, the ability to run KPIs or key process indicators or metrics along the performance of the team in terms of the amount of work or estimate to actuals and run rate. And they have more to do with process management the team's skill set, the ability to deliver, the team's estimation capabilities or how good they are at estimate to actual ratios and so on and so forth. Underneath, at least from a data vault perspective, um, one of the things that I want to bring to bear is one of my mentors, Bill Inman. When I started work in the data warehousing industry, I asked Bill, why do data warehouses fail? And he looked at me and he said, depends on how you define failure. And then he went on to say, well, if you define failure in one aspect in terms of always being late delivery, that's a technical failure to deliver. It has to do with the fact that teams in data warehousing don't ever build a data warehouse the same way twice. So that's always stuck with me from the perspective that 
consistency and standardization in your methodology is what's important. Because like riding a bike, how do you get good at riding a bicycle? First, you get on it, then you start with training wheels at some point. And then once you figure out balance and speed, then you take the training wheels off. And then eventually, well, I I did, I fell down a few times, I hit a few mailboxes and toppled over into the grass. And then I learned, you know, don't hit mailboxes. And I learned, watch where you're going. And I learned all the fundamentals that you were told. I learned the hard way, right? Because I refused to listen to the instructions. In the M&A world or in the KPI world of building software, it's the same thing. How do you get good at the process of building software and releasing consistent quality? You have to have a standard set of methodological approaches, And then you have to have KPAs and KPIs around it that say, how well are you doing in accordance with your expectations? And can you optimize it? And this goes back to a CMM, a set of CMM statements that I make in class. You can't define what you don't understand. Beyond that, if you can't define it, well, then you can't measure it. If you can't measure it, you can't optimize it. And the optimization part is what we call CMMI level five. Now, I've shortened the whole definition for everybody listening, but that's the whole nine yards. In order to optimize, in order to get better at doing what you're doing, you have to understand how you build, and it has to be done in a standardized approach, a process-driven approach, a repeatable approach, and so on. When you build data warehouses, you really are building software, even if you're using a tool to accelerate the process, i.e., a data warehouse automation tool, so to speak. But you're building software. You've got release cycles. You've got tests. You've got QA. You've got production rollouts and on and on and on. You're fixing things. You want to do it in a standardized, repeatable fashion. And that's really where the methodology comes to play. A lot of these software companies that have learned Data Vault take what they've learned from both the agile, discipline, agile approach and the Data Vault methodology, and they apply it to their daily work products and they're better for it. We've got stories where we built operational systems on top of data vaults, one and the same. So we have an operational data warehouse or an operational data vault uh, with analytics built right into the operational application. So it is possible. And we built our first one in 2000, and I want to say 2002 or 2003 on a commercial basis. Obviously, before that, um, we built, yes, we built one inside Lockheed Martin that no one knows about and no one cares about anymore. But all of those things apply And that's what I would say for mergers and acquisitions, it's the same thing. How do you get better at mergers and acquisitions? It's not our primary business, but you can bet it's a VC's interest. So the VC will look at a team and and ask the question, how does the team I'm hiring to do that get better at the process so that my costs are better, faster, cheaper? What you've always said and what we've always taught is you can't define what you don't understand. You can't identify what you don't define, you yep. can't measure what you haven't identified, and then you can't optimize what you haven't measured, And which is what our, the methodology does. It addresses each level of that capability maturity model. Well, I think we're out of time. I want to thank you for your time again and thank the audience for being with us. Dan, would you like to close this out? Yeah, thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. And thank you, Cindy, for an intriguing discussion. We walked you through some of the CMM levels that exist in the data vault layers, and we hopefully touched on some topics that make a lot of sense at the business levels. Thank you, everybody, and we'll uh, see you next time.